0: what's up everybody welcome back to millionaire voices episode number nine with the legendary peter marcus the creator of the intellectual property of the flat screen tv he has so much knowledge for business owners so how to run your business and how he thrives in his life today what's up everybody welcome back to episode number nine millionaire voices Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing the one and only Peter Marcus from the UK, who now lives in the United States, but his journey evolved when he became a successful entrepreneur by creating the term flat-screen TV, and he then went off to sell the IP for millions of dollars. Today in our episode, we talk about his business journey of how he became a coach and what principles he believes makes a great business owner and a leader in any business. So tune on in today to hear Peter Marcus's 70 plus years of wisdom. All right, Peter. Peter, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Danny, it's a pleasure. You know, when you connected with me, I just went, wow, I'm loving this opportunity.
0: Mm, that's that good energy, Peter. Peter and I, we, we actually connected in business. And when when I was building, focusing on building a company, he came in to coach me and our executive team. So I've had the pleasure of working with Peter and and Peter, I learned a lot from you. So this show is something that I really wanted to create to inspire people, educate people, and show people the realness and the lessons from successful entrepreneurs that run at a high performance and business owners and people just in life. And I view you as one of those people. So people don't understand the depths of your story. So I wanna dig in and start really, where are you from?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I was born in Manchester in the north of England. Uh, I'm a post-war kid just post-war, Second World War that is, not not more recently. So I've been around a long time and uh, grew up into what was left of a war-torn kind of nation. and uh, And that's really where I spent my first 15 years, you know, just Living on the, the streets that I grew up on were bombed streets and, and wrecked and there wasn't a lot going on, but, uh, you know, we learned to uh, make our own ideas and, and come forward. But Manchester itself has got a massive, massive history. It really was the, the, the foundational kind of city for what became known as the Industrial Revolution. Manchester had the first ship canal it had the first of the steam powered uh, engines it had the the first of the cotton manufacturing facilities in the in the uh, in the UK and also developed the origin of the computer as we know it today
0: wow it's so fascinating to meet yeah. people yesterday i when I say yesterday, last episode, I spoke to Jack DeLosa, who's a very successful entrepreneur and has an institute in Australia. And back to your story, you grew up in this type of generation. What years are you talking about right now?
1: I was born in 1945, so that makes me 75. I'll just cut to the chases. <laughs> makes it much easier. And um, uh, so, you know... By the time I, it was 1950, I went to school and uh, spent the next uh, kind of 10 years, I guess, uh, that was about it. in in, in my uh, education for the future.
0: Now, before we start talking about all the wise wisdom you've <laughs> been able to accumulate over the years, and I want to know a little bit more of when did your mindset became the growth mindset where you wanted to become so-called successful in your childhood? Well, you know, I was very lucky because um, I grew up into a generation
1: of, of like rock and roll and, 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 and freedom. Um, we, we fought for our freedom, but rock and roll really drove us through. As well as that, um, growing up in Manchester, you know, it's the center really. Of, of football, of soccer, as we call it over here, um, and had two professional teams. And my dream was either to be, well, the choices, I guess, or, and dream, either to be a professional soccer player or a uh, professional rock and roll musician or, um, or to do something different. I had no idea of anything different other than that. Uh, uh, but I knew that I wasn't destined to be a doctor or a lawyer. So um, the, the creative parts of me, I guess, started, um, I think the first kind of testing I did of this was in trying to connect one electronic, w- electric wire to uh, to an outlet and another electric wire to another outlet and getting kicked across the room. So... <laughs> <laughs> that was my first kind of foray.
0: <laughs> and exper- experimenting and, and curiosity got you uh got you in some uh trouble, but so yeah. with that it, I guess you were really you're fascinated by certain things is what I'm getting out of that and it was starting to inspire you. So did you go to a university?
1: No, I didn't. I left school at 15. Um I'd actually been quite ill as a kid. When I was 11, I I got a disease from a strep throat that became known as uh, rheumatic fever. And then for the next two years between 11 and 13 I was either in hospital or out of school. So when I went back to school at 13 I was uh, still like a 10 year old and unable to connect up. So the schools in those days were really not able to to care for anybody and um, I was lucky I'd moved into, into what was a newly built school. So they sent me off to work with the gardeners that were putting the landscaping in there. And I spent a lot of my days just working with the gardeners. And it actually, it taught me so much. I, I, I think that that was really the foundational part of me. It, all, it, it gave me an opportunity to, to find something that I was able to do. And not something that somebody else was doing, and I think that that's really a, a very important category.
0: Wow, that's it. Really shows a resilience there, and and also you were so young that you didn't really harp on it. You kind of just pushed through it. It sounded like, yeah. And really, a lot yeah. of people fall down. What I've seen, and they harp on it. You kind of just mm-hmm. got back up after that that uh, time period in your life. So. It, or it's 60 or 16 years old you're kind of getting a feel for the real world per se what was the next Peter Marcus move we want to know
1: <laughs> okay so uh you know 16 years old of course you know we were in a period of uh, like I said of uh, I don't want to say sex drugs and rock and roll but really you know I mean that was the period of time that this was really foundational 1960 1961 these were the days of it and there wasn't a lot else to do you know there was still very very I mean very few people had cars you know I think we had by then probably I think I might have known a couple of friends that had cars I certainly didn't have one but I started to to look around at things I wanted to do and I decided that um I wanted to be a photographer and um I was lucky I had an uncle Um, who was a photographer and fairly well known and um, so I actually picked up a camera and I got myself my first summer job working as a photographer and uh, and I spent the next two summers doing exactly that working uh, you know on the uh, on the tourist towns I mean you know just just snapping people uh taking pictures doing that kind of stuff it actually helped me because it gave me a lot of time to work in the pubs as well and the bars taking photographs and you know and of course there's a 17 18 year old and you know i was in that perfect age group to really um really involve myself heavily (laughs) in the bright shiny objects that were there
0: you're so, you're so wise that you're doing such a great job, not telling us the details, but you're telling <laughs> the details. And I can guess it was that cliche sex, drugs, and alcohol and rock and roll type era. And it also probably got you to see life quickly of like all the pleasures of per se, and also realizing what path you wanted to. So, yeah now that kind of that now you become a, a man 21 years old and are you now when did you start that next turbo in your life I, I,
1: I you know at 21 is it's great that you came to me at 21 because I, I met somebody during those years and we stayed friends and he had an idea to develop a product and 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 it, I, I really loved the idea I really loved that, that I could do something, you know, do something that nobody else had done. And um, together we worked on his project and it was the first sea scooter. Now, a sea scooter today, of course, you know, everybody drives them around the ocean and they spray out a lot of water from the back. But we took the engine from an old Lambretta um, um, scooter and actually put it in and built a fiberglass shell around it. Um, And we we actually made uh, a double page spread in the biggest of the daily newspapers in the UK at that time. Um, We failed within within a couple of years because we could make one, but then people wanted them. And that's when we really found out. We couldn't do that. Um, but it had really uh, instilled, it had brought back to me this want and desire for me to do something that was creative. And uh, and that was the period. I was 21. By the time I was 23, I uh, would kind of drifted apart. Um, and, uh, and I was looking around for something else to do. I actually got married at 24. And uh, at 25, had my first child, or my, my wife had, my first, had our first child, I should say, um, and uh, times were still pretty tough in, in the UK, and certainly for me, because I really hadn't found myself um, at that time.
0: So when was the time that you started to actually, like you said, see the past, see the light, see who you were, uh, yeah, yeah that next level?
1: Yeah, 25, 26, um, met up with another couple of guys, a uh, uh, couple of London, uh, I'm still in Manchester, a couple of fellows from London, got friendly with them. And, and and we started trading used and worn Levi's jeans. And we were buying them from a, a, a group over here in the US uh, called Gene Machine, and we were kind of reselling them and doing them. And, uh, and then we started manufacturing our own line of clothing and jeans, primarily. And I then uh, took our business offshore. We became kind of, uh, you know, a brand. We were really one of the early brands. Um, and in those years, London was the swinging 60s. You know, this was like the late 60s. Uh, and uh, that we got into this thing and by... 24, 25, 1970, we were, we were really swinging. We were all over the world with our, with our branding at that time. And uh, we were manufacturing in Hong Kong, and manufacturing in India. And um, through legal circumstance, we couldn't get enough cotton. We weren't allowed to buy enough cotton in the UK. So I took us offshore to manufacture in Malta, which is an island south of Sicily. Uh, in the Mediterranean, and um, and we stayed there for the next couple of years until 1973 when the Maltese government kind of took a turn and uh, we were part of a nationalization that went on. And I went back to the UK again and stayed back in the UK for the next couple of years and then finally moved to North America that had really grown to... Um, to a, a thinking that, wow, that's really where I want to be in 1976. I moved to New York City in 1976. I think it was February in 76.
0: Oh, wow, Peter. That was fascinating. Thank you for that backstory. And before we start diving full speed into business, because some viewers only want to talk money, which I'm cool with that, but <laughs> also have viewers that really want to understand the depth and study why people are successful. And for you, I heard so many things there Peter, that, that was so fascinating from one, you became a dad. So you turned on like, hey, listen, I have to provide for my family mentality and I have to be a man and I'm <laughs> business partners. And you start this from scratch. It sounds like you were trying to be as big as Levi's became. With, <laughs>
1: with- <laughs> yeah. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Uh- but you were also just trying to make, make ends meet and create success. So you had to do what you had to do and created all these learning of business by direct materials, and sourcing. It taught you a lot. Is what. I'm talking
1: about. Yeah, it taught me a lot, actually. I learned to be an international trader in those years. And, um, you know, the foundation wasn't that we were going to get massive. We, we got huge, actually. Um, but there was no thought towards getting big. You know, we just can't, it just happened. We were, you know, we were the hippie traders kind of thing. And in fact, um, we were the hippie traders. <laughs> That's what we were. We were the hippie traders, you know. We'd, we'd cruise off to different places and do different things. And, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 the product line just grew and grew and grew. And, um, and uh, you know, it was just a period of time. You know, a lot of youth, a lot of inexperience. Um, and I don't know that we ever really did anything, you know, right. If there is a right or there's a wrong or there's a good or there's a bad, you know, I don't think we ever really did anything right. We were there at the right time. Just that was it. It was, it was just the right time Had the right connections, the right relationships. We had the, um, we had the opportunities and we actually took them. Um, and, and that actually taught me something that I carry to this day about opportunity. I think it's one of the most important areas of, of, of creativity and business. Uh, and I look at opportunity um, in a way that if I see opportunity, I make split second decision and, and I embrace it fully. Uh, I use the analogy of a shooting star. When you see a shooting star, um, you know, it's gone in a second, but you always remember the moment that you see it, and that's what I call opportunity. And embrace that moment in time, and that continues on.
0: Now, I have a qu- quick question about that with opportunity. For my human design, I like to see opportunity, but then kind of let me get all the facts first. Let me sit on the opportunity. Let me think about it, and then attack. Mm-hmm. I know. If I prolong that, that shooting star is gone. But would you say for certain people, that split-second decision might not be good for it? They might need to embrace the opportunity?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of places in that that are, that are really important, and it's a personal choice. Um, I, I kind of worked it out quite recently that if I'm 15% into something, I go. That You know, and, and, and that's a math. But business is math and science. Um, so it really is math. It's like if I'm 15% in, I see it, I go, wow, that's got it. That's got legs. Let me go. Uh, and, and the whole of my energy gets involved with it at, at that moment in time.
0: That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing, Peter. And and now I just want to touch on this, and then we're going to speed up that episode and talk about your knowledge in business and running companies now and and what your coaching is and whatnot. You are coined the creator of the technology for the flat screen TV for the visual. (laughs) The visual, when you took the visual idea, or you took an idea from the army, explain a little bit further. It was so fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, well, um, what we call flat screen TV was my name. I named it flat screen TV. Uh, it was actually called the plasma display panel. And it was invented in 1962 by Owings Corning, IBM, and the University of Illinois. And they developed this primarily for uh, DOD, Department of Defense, for military utilization in airplane cockpit and for submarine. They wanted a thin form display instead of the old bulky CRT. So um, by 1986, IBM had decided that they couldn't utilize the technology in an area that they wanted to, which was to put it into a laptop, because the technology burns quite hot, the screen display was quite hot and also it was monochrome it was like a horrible orangey red color as a display tech so the um so it was not a tv by any means it was just a display panel um uh, i was lucky enough in those days because i was in new york city i built a small tech company um, that took the original led and um, put together large display boards and billboards and um, you know the LED ticker displays and the stock exchange and the bourse around the world. And we'd been the first in North America to actually do that. That was the technology that came from British aerospace. A friend of mine introduced me to it um, one of my trips back to the UK, I think 1978 or something, 77. Um, And I'd taken that technology and brought it over to America and worked with a small group of engineers and we built the first of the dot matrix displays that later became the billboards that are ubiquitous in the world today. So I was quite involved in display at that time and therefore I was invited um, by this group to, uh, to get involved in this plasma display technology. A friend of mine, um, Steve Globus, invested and bought the IBM stock and all their inventory and all their technology and their management team as a management buyout. And Steve uh, spoke to me about it. And I looked at this tech and I thought, well, you know, it's not quite right for, for my display business, but I just see some possibilities. And over a period of time, I got to know that there was development going on for it in Japan as well. And they were looking to actually produce um, a thin, uh, slimline uh, TV and and release it to the general public in 2003. So this is going back to 1986, 1987. This is long-term stuff here, long-term strategy long-term business. The reason that they had decided it was so far in advance is A, um, it was gonna take at least 20 years to develop, to, to get color into it, to make it into a thin form, to actually be able to get a TV onto the market. As well as that, their cash cow was the CRT, the cathode ray tube, that was the big fat TVs as we knew them. And um, in those years, uh, 89, 90, they were producing between the large uh, Japanese Koretsu, the, uh, the Japanese manufacturers that we know of today that still exist, of course, the large guys are still the same big guys. Um, they were producing between them around 60 million units a year. And, um, and they reckoned that by 2003, they could have production capacity of about six million flat panels a year. And they were willing to disrupt their CRT business when they got to six million units a year or 10 percent of their uh, of their requirement, because they knew as soon as they released a flat panel, nobody ever wanted a CRT anymore. So I got to know about all this and here am I running this small kind of tech business in New York in the midst of, of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the fashion industry, the, uh, the, the arts and the design and the music thing that was going on in New York in these years. Um, I um, had a, a, a 3,000 square foot loft on lower Broadway in the midst of what is now Soho. And, and we had everything kind of going for us. Again, we were in at the right time, at the right, you know, the right space, the right time with the right tech. So uh, we set to work. And um, by 92, 93, um, there'd been a development. And some of the first colors had been put onto these displays, 256K colors. To get to TV, you need $20.6 million Is the you know it's quite a a, listen the the TV technology business is massive, but you needed such an advancement. So we started actually playing with the early two fifty six K colors like an early computer screen, um, and there was a big problem. A the plasma panel was digital, all television was analog. There were no analogue cameras, there were no analogue studios, and there was no way of transferring an analogue signal to a digital signal. So that's where we actually took our kind of edge. And we built an analogue to digital signal converter. We also took the format, which was um, another kind of problem. TV in those days was a four by three format. We took that um, onto what was a digital display that was 16 by nine. So we did a resizing and uh, and we played around in those days with it and actually produced the first um, of the large displays uh, in 95 and started showing them at the Atlanta Olympics in 96 together with Avon cosmetics <laughs> quite an interesting kind of shoot there that
0: <laughs> is unbelievable that is crazy because <laughs> it's just a journey went on with something that was people it's just like people didn't know it was coming to the surface and you were someone who helped with that creativity I think it stems back to your childhood now my yeah. million dollar question is did it give you a lot of financial gain too through all this?
1: Yeah, in a period of time. The early LEDs were great. You know, we were able to finance this next operation into Plasma TV. And uh, by uh, 97, um, we actually moved the whole operation into California, came out of New York City. There wasn't growth for me in New York City, but I was able to get growth into Silicon Valley, into California. And we actually took our Um, three components the resizing the uh, the analog to digital and the cooling system that we built as well and we took that and uh, traded that off to another company by then I realized that there was no way I would ever become a consumer electronics company you know I didn't have the mentality I didn't have the want and desire and There's no space. You know, the Japanese owned the world in those days. Also, in those days, the Koreans were starting to come up. And we went through some really interesting periods, um, you know, prior to the transition into California. And um, and by then, you know, in February 1997, we launched the the world's first consumer flat screen TV. It was uh, globally televised. We did it from the 57th Street showroom for a, a catalog company called Hamaker Schlemmer. Schlemmer were the first of the big tech catalog companies. They'd done the first uh, answer phone. They'd done the first kind of electronic toaster. And uh, they have this beautiful store on 57th Street in New York City. And we brought in all of the original old TVs. All of the TV stations were invited in. We did live broadcast from there. Myself and Bill, the president of uh, Hamakashlema, we did a formal unveiling of the world's first flat screen TV. They had them on the, uh, on the front page of their catalog. The first one was, tw- I think the first 42 inch TV was $20,000. Uh, we made six of them stainless steel all signed by the by me and bill and we did this tv show cnn started then to to kind of broadcast and invite us on and so there was a lot of like who you know everybody wanted a flat tv everybody wanted a hang on the wall tv and i actually in one of my statements to uh, one of my tv things with the uh, with CNN, I said, well, you know, other people have mirrors in their bedroom. I actually have a TV on my ceiling. So, you know, when you make that kind of statement, of course, in, you know, in the late 90s, people are going, oh my God, you know, is this real? Uh, But everybody wanted one. Uh, We couldn't, there no way we could make them. We opened this production facility in uh, in Foster City, uh, uh, just outside San Mateo, uh, north of Silicon Valley. And we started manufacturing. It was quite difficult to manufacture. By then, of course, all the Japanese Garetsu found out that I was doing what they had as crown jewels in this small way. And the interesting thing is that all of my components came from them. They didn't know it was happening. I, I was lucky enough. I had somebody that I got friendly with in the US military, and we were getting all of these samples that were supposed to be for military but the military didn't want it at that time. It was too hot. So it was an interesting thing. But we, you know, we, we sold our IP, sold our tech. And, uh, and I went into, I wouldn't say retirement, but I went into, into the field of what's next. I'd become a dinosaur. So,
0: so. <laughs> so, so Peter, and now we're going to turn on to that business uh, wisdom that you have. But I do need to point out right there, that last part, that you said, and, and, and it really, you know, is a huge thing for entrepreneurs, and I don't want to tread lightly. I want to ask and understand. You said you sold the IP, meaning the intellectual property. that means your technology that you created that it was considered yours and your companies you sold that intellectual property to your exit strategy that was created financial gain for you that where you could be pretty much you reached a lot of your goals at that point was was it that that moment a surreal moment
1: uh yeah uh
0: or so i thought um however I'd also
1: become the most hated man in the consumer electronics business by that time, because I'd broken the crown jewels that were subject to be uh, sent out to the world in 2003. And here I was in 1997. I own these words called flat screen TV. Philips, who are one of the majors that had a deal with Fujitsu, who were the people who made all the components, and still do to this day, of course, Fujitsu. Um, Philips had a deal with, uh, with uh, Fujitsu, um, and they owned the words of flat TV. So, of course, we got into a bit of a lawsuit that lasted for the next couple of years and was very costly. Um, uh, uh, you know, and there's big learning in this, let me tell you, don't get your ego engaged. You know, my ego got engaged. I own flat screen TV. That was the name. However, we actually lost the lawsuit because of the cost of it. I had to make a decision. So we're not going to go. You know, they had hundreds of attorneys. We only had a couple. So uh, I said, no, we're not going to go any further with this. Let them win. Uh, They owned flat TV. We still owned flat screen TV, but the name on their panel was now flat TV. Uh, uh, And so, and that's the way it was. However, they're still called flat screen TV. So I lost the war or I lost, you know, I lost the war, but I won a battle kind of thing. Uh, But the the secret here is, Danny, don't get your ego engaged. It's just another deal.
0: Let me tell you, thank you for saying that. I'm going to say that a lot this show, Peter, because there's a lot to thank you with your wisdom, because my ego got in the way in my business thus far I became an entrepreneur right after I graduated Florida State University in 2013 obviously you you'll figure you're an entrepreneur since the early mentality but when you step into that real world and you let your ego get in the way it'll cost you it'll cost you you'll see it's not going to just cost you financially it's going to cost you with other uh, mentally and spiritually in so many different ways so I'm, I'm thankful that I learned how to understand the ego and we'll dive into that in the mindset. I want to stay on business with you because you have a lot of nuggets, I call it, for people to learn. Let's talk about running a successful company. You became a coach. Let's say, I don't want to speed up too fast, but after that, when did you see the passion for helping other business owners?
1: Uh, It's an interesting question. I'd I'd had a lot of help, um, and I'd also learned that I was alone. I'd made a lot of decisions on my own. So when I say I'd had a lot of help, I had a lot of help from people who were willing to do the work, but I had zero help from people who were in business, per se. And... um, and it, was, it became apparent to me, you know, I'd done this trade, I'd kind of uh, ended up in, uh, I, I'd, I'd moved, I, I, at that time I was living in San Francisco, I'd been there for about a year, really wasn't having a great time. I actually uh, moved um, moved us out to the coastline in Monterey, one of the most beautiful places, I think, and in, in, in certainly in California, and probably one of the most beautiful coastlines in the world. And um, and I spent my day um, I'd also become uh, a barefoot beach runner. It gave me some grounding. I'd been in high tech, I'd been in New York City for 20 years. you know I'd always stayed fit and healthy. but I, I took on this way of being a barefoot beach running. I, I followed some old African runners and uh, and I really got to enjoy myself and it really started to ground me. Um, I knew that there was no way I was going to do tech again. Um, uh, You know, by then I wasn't like a dinosaur compared to what was going on. But I'd gained a lot of friends in the tech business. And there were a number of them like myself, same age group who'd done similar kind of deals. And in those days, you know, the, the, the deals were not in the billions. They were still in the millions. So, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I got friendly with a few of them and we'd, we'd talk. And a lot of us went through that similar thing that we made decisions as loners. You know, um, we had teams around us, but when it comes to decision, and I realized that business owners really are loners and um and it kind of developed from there. Um, I also had a very, very close friend of mine who was like my younger brother who had taken a life coaching course and one day in conversation, I remember I was kind of i'd just come back from a run, I was sitting in my car and i was I was on the um, I, I think that Um, You know, I was on this, like, path of not really knowing where I was going, but knowing that I I wanted to do something that involved other business owners like myself. Uh, I enjoyed conversations with other people. And i had been really lucky, you know, I mean, I met with some of the greats because my uh, original TVs were actually in some of the houses of the biggest names in technology uh, to this day um and uh so uh so i met these people and i just had a feeling and I, i had this conversation with bob bob silverstone who um um i'd known for many many years and had taken on this coaching course and and after a bit of time bob said to me you know peter he said you should be doing what i'm doing you've worked around the world you've built businesses you've built teams you've led organizations you've been innovative i said but bob you know, I was offered a consultancy when, you know, after this IP sale, and I just don't want to go out there and promote other people's products. I don't want to be that consultant. I don't want to do that kind of work. And he said, well, no, you know, coaching is slightly different. Why don't you kind of consider it? So I considered it. I Actually, I went off and took a coaching course, a live coaching course, and I hated it. I came back and I said, no, it's not going to work, Bob. You know, it's just like, it's too kind of loosey-goosey, airy-fairy for me. Uh, Those were my words, actually. I remember them to this day because I often speak them. Uh, And then he said, well, what about a business coaching? So I took a business coaching course and I came back and I really disliked it. It wasn't for me. It was all stuff that, you know, as a business owner, it was the grind stuff for me, people that I hired other people to do. Um, And I said, no, that's not going to work. But I like the attitude of being able to talk to business owners like myself. So I actually spent a couple of months and I wrote a program that I utilize to this day called Business Life. And it was made for business owners and founders. And it was built upon this assumption that owners are loners. We make decisions. We have to make decisions. And that was the foundation of my coaching business. And also, I'd continued my relationship in the Valley and went back to some of the people that I'd grown close to and said, Look, you know, I'm doing this new thing. What do you think? You know, can we have a chat? I'd like to see if it's possible that what I'm thinking could work with other people. Um, And I started coaching. And then somebody said something great to me. I said, you know what, Peter, coaches coach. That's all they do. And they don't stop coaching until somebody says, stop coaching me. I can't stand it anymore. And, uh, and that broke it for me. I really kind of got it and said, uh, oh, OK, that's interesting. And that's when I started coaching. That was, um, I guess, the, mm, the beginning of 90, maybe in the middle of 98. I really started it professionally.
0: Yeah, and I, when I was reading up on you, I mean, I know of you, and I know that you're around a lot of highly successful people uh, because of the respect that you've gained. And, and one thing I saw was that it says, it's all about you. You take an approach like it's all about you. And I think that's was the difference of coachings, coaches until the player quits, per se, versus, hey, listen, it's all about you. Now, what defines a business owner that that you see they're going to be successful? What what's some principles that you see?
1: Yeah, well, I have a, 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 a an, I guess it, it's really a gut feeling. You brought up that word before, you know, about that feeling and, and that gut. I'd like to get to know who I'm talking to. I like to to spend some time with them and really get an idea as to what they're into. Um, and, and that's developed really over the years, you know, this, 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 this trust. Um, I trust in myself. And I think that's one of the things that defines how I look at others. Um, you know, I, I, I see a spark in somebody. I see that, that want and desire. I see that willingness. Um, one of the things I look for is somebody that gets up in the morning. You know, it's quite a simple thing. Uh, somebody that gets up in the morning. Somebody that accepts that. You know, the title is is really. Um I do I do a number of different things, I, and I work very much on, on job titles as well. You know, somebody that says, yeah, I'm a leader in this organization or I'm a leader in this foundation. Um, I, you know, the word leader is an egoistic title. It's like doctor or lawyer or mother or father. It's just and it gives somebody else an opportunity to really make a decision and see. Uh, and see the other person without digging in too deeply. But I I take that word of leader and actually um, institute the attitude of leadership. And and that's really where I like to begin. I like to know that the person has got capability and willingness to speak and to tell their own story. I like to know that not only um, do they tell their story, but that they have a story, and it's not somebody else's. Um, You know, I've I've got to know a number of trainers, um, and and perhaps it's well worth um, an introduction here as to the difference of the way that I look upon it. You know, trainers are people that tell you how to do it. Uh, Consultants are people that come along and say, hey, I've got a couple of ideas you know, if you hire me, I'll, I'll work with you in them. Um, mentors are people who actually have done the job before and are willing to, to share their, um, their knowledge. And coaches, I believe, are people who run alongside the individual who's got an idea and is willing to, to go out and implement it. And a coach can really step into that realm.
0: That's powerful, Peter. I uh, I really like how you broke that down because I never wanted to define... I never thought of the, defining those different things like that. And it really sets a perspective for a business owner to approach what they need. So it's like you're hiring assassins to be there to help you, to be a brain for you. But there's different types. There's what how you mentioned those four types. is very, very smart. So... You take that approach to run alongside people because it's Peter Marcus coaching. Now, with that, you're watching the evolution of companies. What do you think are some qualities that make a company great?
1: Well, uh, the ability to um, to manage their finances is vital. You know, that's like, uh, listen, runways... Runways are vital. You have to know how far you can go on the money you've got. Um, The ability to attract individuals and sustain um, a forward-thinking attitude, Uh, core values of an organization are imperative. The core values, I think, are, you know, we, people always talk about a mission statement and a vision. This is where we're going to be and this is, this is how we're going to go about it. But the inclusion and the institution of core values into that is really what people get. And, and core values might be as simple as, you know, we pay our bills on Thursday. Um, we open our store at 8 a.m um we care for our employees core values are really what people get core values um we're here to help uh core values you know the customer is always right i look at at the way that we communicate to me communication is the vital component it's interesting because we're back now to the job ideas in tech was about communication it was about the messaging that we came across with in our early LED displays. It was the way that we actually built the, 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 the display or the flat screen TV to bring the messaging across. It's that communication tool. And, and I'm a real believer in internal and external communications. One of the things that we've done for our most successful organizations was actually instituted the uh, the thing that today is called content marketing, you know, and and and, and I remember, you know, in, in bringing this to people, and they look at me like, well, why do we want to do content? It's a, it's not what we're doing. It's not our focus. But I've always done this for years and years and years, and um, and and to me, it's vital. It's the way we can communicate and of course now content is uh, you know is is like that's the name of the game you know social media is all about the content that you put out and the way you utilize your content but to me it was so important and a number of relationships have broken down for me because um, of an unwillingness or uh, an inability or an, an unavailability to actually institute content into the way that people ran their business. And I say that in the way that people ran their business, because this is really important. When we put content out, it's about external communication, it tells the story of who we are. And that's what people get.
0: And that's, that's really true, Peter, because you're creating, you're tapping into someone's heart when you're talking to them, whether you're selling any type of product or service. And the messaging is so imperative, so that they know what story you're telling behind yeah. this simple product or service that is to fulfill a need. But the story of how it got there, and, and, and obviously it's not black and white. You know, the story isn't very important, right. but you know, a quality product is more important, or and whatnot. But every point you made, I thought I I, I really did align with completely. And one thing I want to bring up also in and, and backtrack a little bit about defining a great organization. We talked a little bit about finance and operations and I want to understand like your mentality of how you approach all the pillars, including what well, we talked about marketing, sales. Sales is something I'm very familiar with. What's your yeah. take on sales for an organization and what's your advice in that department?
1: I, I, you know, I taught the bits and pieces of business. And to me, sales is if you're not making sales, you're not going to be in business. I, it's so basic. Sales is the name of the game for business. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care if you're a dentist or a lawyer. If you're not making sales, you know, you, you don't have a business. If you're a product, if you're not making sales, you're not in business. And, and making sales is really the, 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 the making of a business so you know i've worked like i said over the years with lots of tech companies and you know we've got this and one of the secrets i learned as a young person um in in tech was that i learned to talk to the inventor and utilize my own intellect as to what i would do with what that inventor said they were inventing and i would utilize that view and make a sales conversation going forward from there and make a sales conversation from what i learned wow you know i looked at this little kind of led this little diode and i said wow you put a bunch of those together and you can you know flash pictures or flash flash, uh, dis, uh, flash uh, you know movement and do that kind of thing uh, but you know the inventors talked about these diodes and you put two wires in here and this chemical mix and, and, and that's a very very different way of being but if you're not making sales you're no longer in business and management of sales is vital it's, it, the creativity required is vital
0: mm. So true. And we're going to touch on leadership because you did bring it up earlier. Another question I had for you, you know, when it came down to it, is hierarchy you mentioned. What's your take on hierarchies in organizations? <laughs> A mentor of mine, Ryan Blair, mentioned his buddy who tragically passed away from Zappos, the founder of Zappos, ran his organization. Uh, it's called Holacracy or something. Or if I correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, what's your take on hierarchy?
1: yeah hierarchy well you know i like to turn hierarchy upside down and i like to put leadership as the foundation for everything everything else that happens and then above leadership because if leadership is the foundation above that is um, is leader and above that is the uh, you know the ceo or the president and above that is the exec team and above that are the vps So I turn hierarchy upside down, and it's all about leadership to me. It's really, um, the thing is that if, if the leadership doesn't take duty and responsibility, it's never gonna work. It's never gonna, things don't travel up a company, they travel down a company. So when you turn it upside down, um, I would never take on a an organization for myself or any of our coaches or any of our collaborations. We would never take on a client unless the founder was involved in the conversation. I work purely with founder and owner. But our other coaches work with many different levels, you know, marketing, sales, uh, uh, organization, planning, strategies. Um, But I will never take on a team in an organization unless the owner is a part of that team conversation. So
0: it's really about leadership. Hierarchy, to me, it doesn't work let's dig in a little bit to that word leadership then peter you know leadership what do you define it as and then why is it so important
1: leadership is the game Uh, that that's the game you know and when you formulate a business you're actually putting together a new game um and and perhaps the game has certain kind of pre-existent rules like if you put a uh, a technology business together or you put a fashion business together then there are some existing rules of those games you know distribution uh, supply uh, marketing um you know there are there are rules around it but I, i'm a believer that as a founder when you put that together you actually design the game of what that's going to look like and 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 the leader's job is to care for the team. Um, I've been a follower for for years of something that I I heard about. I don't know how close to reality it is. I didn't even want to check it out because I'm a believer in, in what I heard. And that is that in Zen Buddhism, the highest priest has the job of washing the rice. And that to me is leadership. That's caring for the people. Now, people may say that's servant leadership, um, but I love it as Zen leadership. Wow, Zen Buddhism. The job is to wash the rice. The job is to care for the people. Uh, That's leadership. We talk about it all day, every day, every day. And leadership is not limited to the the top person. Leadership is a personal way of being. I can bring leadership into this conversation with you, and, and, and this is yours. You know, but I can bring leadership into it by my presenting myself at my best, by my caring, by my attitude, by my want, by my desire. I can bring that stuff. And, and, and it's part of the criteria that we work with. You asked a question earlier on about making decisions. One of the ways that I make a decision to take on a client is by asking them what do they want to get out of our relationship. I like
0: that. Expectations. Yeah,
1: what do I want to get out of our relationship? And I say this, look, the more you want to get, the more probability. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you to sit down for a few minutes and just write a list of things that you want to get from our relationship. And when you're done, let's talk again. And then when that list is there and I keep saying, look, the list is not static. It doesn't end here. It's something for you to continue to build on and really note down what you want to get. You know, uh, I I often have conversations or, you know, perhaps until Covid really struck us down. uh, My conversations were always over lunch or over breakfast or over, you know, over something that was away from the formal office of my client. Um, It was always a choice. I wanted to get into some intermediary space where it wasn't their space. Um, And I would say, okay, you know, just just make a note. Make a note of some of the things that you want to get. and, And let me model it for you is always a way that I'll bring it. And I say, you know, I want to get to have a good lunch with you. I want to get to bring my credit card so that I can pay for it. I want to get to know more about you. I want to get to spend my time with you. Now we're starting to open up. It's not just, I want to get to build a big business. I want to get to get somebody's finance. I want to get to make more sales. We're now starting to get into the nitty gritty of the individual. This is where I work. I work in that little area there, that space of ownership. And the more that you want to get, the more possibility of doing that when we've had a look at what it is that I want to get, the next question is, have a look at what it is that you will bring to get what you want to get. And this is, these two questions might seem very simple, but the two questions are really earth and world shattering for any individual that really is willing to go there. Because when you look at what it is that you 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 can bring you can only bring what you've got there's a very simple rule right if i've not got 10 million dollars i can't bring it but you know if i've got 2 million i can bring that Um, i can bring my time like i said i can bring my expertise i can bring my want my desire my wishes my thoughts i can bring my consideration i can bring my expertise I can bring my thoughts, I can bring my associations, I can bring my relationships. These are things I can bring. So when we put these two things together, now we've got a package.
0: You said so much there. I'm I'm almost telling you I'm I'm feeling it in and processing it. Because it, it it really you made a lot of valid points there. And it shows you are a leader, Peter. It, it shows that you are someone who wants to lead someone in the right direction and not just be a cliche, get your money and go type person. You're way, way more advanced than that. And another thing I saw that, that I'm thinking you're bringing to this equation is almost some spirituality into business because, mm. you know, When you're good, when you're focused, and when you're manifesting, let's talk about that word. It's a very cliche word being thrown around right now, but what you're having your clients do is you're having them visualize by writing it down and then believe it and then feel it. So you're technically having them manifest it, but you're going to work towards it in reality with a clean conscious and, and, and best version. Is that type of approach that you're doing too or not really thinking it like that
1: yeah uh, it it really is a way of um you know I call it a shortcut actually because I've met so many people that do this job of coach or consultant or trainer I want to move away from the trainer thing because to me you train somebody they do it then they lose it it's not theirs the, the consultant also I want to move away from that because consultant brings ideas. Look, I'm not being derogatory to these two areas of 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 of, of growth um, potential, but I I really want to stay focused here in the way of methodology that 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 I work in personally as a coach, which is to get from the individual, what it is that they already have. Mm. Uh, You know, I work in the sport coach business, right? I, I, I mean, that's it. Uh, My original kind of coaches that I kind of built my business on were two soccer coaches from from Manchester, one in the 50s and and one later on into the the 70s. Um, And they were both very caring. They knew their players. They asked everything of their players and their players respected them enough to build themselves into being who they had capabilities to build. One can only do what one can do. You know, I'll never be six foot four, blonde hair and blue eyes. It's not who I am. But I can be a pretty good example of myself. You know, that whole thing, right? What is it? You can be, uh, it's easier to be 100% of yourself than 1% of anybody else. So that's it. But this this way of being, this shortcut I talk about is by actually entering into somebody else's being and and either nudging them or reminding them or or moving alongside them. Uh, My kind of cliche statement is I become another head on that person's shoulders. They hear me whispering in their ears. They hey, you know, I often get a phone call hey, Peter, you know, this morning I was working on this thing and, and I thought to myself, what would Peter say? Uh, that's my job, is to sit right there and be in that position. And it's a position of trust. You know, I work um, over the past uh, almost eight years now. Um, you know, we, we, we work, of course, in the U.S., I've worked a bit in the UK over many of these years. And then about eight years ago, we started to work in Northern Italy. And I moved my business into Northern Italy, A, because I love Como, which is, you know, I have a home in Como. I have two places that I live right now. One is Como and one is Palm Beach. And they're both beautiful, beautiful places. Um, But I chose Northern Italy because of the amount and the value of family business. (coughs) Excuse me. the amount and the value of family business there. The largest fashion houses are family owned. The largest furniture designs, family owned. The car businesses were family owned. And I love family business. And family business has its own set of circumstances and its own frailties and its own difficulties. But in Northern Italy, the attitude is so formulated the patron the grandfather still sits there and the grandmother still comes in and Nona and papa and they and they make the decisions um and 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 i guess that i'm lucky because i'm an older guy as well so i can get on with these people because they look around and they go consultants we don't deal with them you know coaches no 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 but, you know, I'm, I'm I'm with them. You know, we, we talk a similar language and we sit and we work together, but not in the formal ways. I think that a lot of people work together. You know, I mean, look, so they've been doing this for two or three generations. Often these families that we talk about, you know, the the silk manufacturers, the the ink manufacturers that we work with out there, the furniture manufacturers we work with out there, the farmers that that we work with out there. It's quite an interesting mix of people, but these attitudes of ownership are really where we take it. And we actually bring in this leadership, knowledge and way of being. And you remind these people, as I call them, These people, these individuals about leadership and what it is that they do on a daily basis without really considering it. You know, they they, they care for myriad of families who've grown with them and cared for them over the years. They they own industries, they are in themselves so well respected, they actually at times lose connection with tomorrow's world or today's world because of it and because of the family hierarchy there's often not a lot of room for for the younger members to actually grow into it so it's quite an interesting area. It's an area I love actually. I
0: I love working in that specific. Let me ask you something Peter on that note with being around that type of status are uh, presidents of nations and royals getting this type of advice too? one of
1: my um, one of my uh, perhaps gurus um, um, has been doing this work for, for many many years um, and um, and and been working in this way for many many years with presidents and and with leaders of nations of course you know in today's world we're well, it, it's very, very difficult because there really is never any time for a president to do things before the media stories um, uh, dissipate or, or change what's going on. Um, but um, you know, I'm a follower of Werner Erhardt. and Werner, I was lucky enough, you know, in the in the in the 70s to actually do a training called EST, which was the uh, Erhardt uh, uh, Erhard something trainings, uh, seminars and trainings, right? And, and Werner, a leader. I mean, I look at Werner's work to this day, and and um, and, and he's been doing that work for years. Um, you know, if we look at Tony Robbins today, Tony does this kind of work. Um, this is going on. Let me tell you, the, the the break between leadership at that level and the people is just so great, and is is getting greater. You know, the larger our governments, the less connection and communication that we really have. I think, um, and 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 you know, without talking politics uh that are very very difficult for me to speak about um i you know i i just see that that the the influence uh that is available i think in today's day and age is just not a not given uh a chance to operate um because There is just so many levels in between. You know, we look at any business today, and if you can involve conversation into that business, the business is going to change its structure. Um, I I love working in startup. I've been lucky enough to be a mentor. Um, I started mentoring in in technology startup in 1997, actually, at the University of Berkeley uh, in the engineering school, and then we took that program, that entrepreneurial program, we took it off into, uh, it became a program in uh, Stanford. And if you look at uh, two of the largest organizations in the world today, both of those organizations took their foundation from coaching methodology um, from those days. In fact, at Google today, you can go online today and apply for a job. And one of the questions is about coaching. Uh, coaching as a methodology is the way to do it. A lot of companies start to grow and they don't realize the value of conversation, how it works with team building. Team building is vital. And this also is a founder's attitude. It's one of the core values. You know, Building a team is so vital, having that relationship and, and applying duty and responsibility, having clearly defined rules and regulations these are the secrets of business today. You know, a lot of companies struggle because they don't have clarity. They don't have definition. Uh, there are too many kind of gray areas. Um, so we see that going on every day in business.
0: You know, it's funny you said that because uh, another mentor of mine, Jim Fannin, I got to work with before. He always used to teach me, Danny, authority, responsibility, accountability, is so vital, so you hit the nail on the head. I remember working with you, how much yeah. you would just get me to write down. I remember we would spend whatever time it took on the whiteboard yeah. writing everything that I did in my role yeah. of responsibility so yeah. I can map it out and understand where to go, which leads me to, what's it What's it like working with a million uh, people who are doing millions and billions of dollars in, in, in business? What's it like to embrace this, you know, Relationship and and just be around this. Like, what's is it fascinating?
1: Yeah, it, it truly has been a gift for me um because I guess I get to see that you know we're all human. We're frail.
0: The frailties actually show up. Can you hear me? Are we okay? Yeah, I'm pointing like it, to the camera. Like, you got me okay. with that one. <laughs> you got me with that one, yeah. Peter. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you know, I've got to keep my eye on you because I know that you're, you're, you're a goer, you're a, you're a mover and a shaker. So, you know, I've got to stay young and healthy and fit to keep up with you. Um, But it it really is—it's been transformational for me. Um, you know, um, another thing, 1997, I guess, was a really important year for me. I went through a number of, of changes. You know, I, I just mentioned the fact that we. Um, I was invited to join this entrepreneurial course mentor program at Berkeley University. Now, you know, I'd been out of school at fifteen. You know, and, and so for me, university was like, oh my god, you know. And I and 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 I'd also always wanted to be in the background, although I'd always kind of found myself in the foreground. Um, but I, you know, I was like, I wanted to stay outside. Didn't really want people to find out about me if they, you know, if I was out there prominently leading things. You know, people would find out that you know I, I was like this and that. So. Um, But I remember that um, it was a four person team when I joined the program, I was invited by two brothers, Wayne and Wade Dickinson, they actually were the inventors for a technology that today is called fracking, they developed this technology for the oil Pipe, the oil drill that went round bends and pushed out water and enabled fracking as we know it today. Um, but Wayne and Wayne and their and Wayne Wade's daughter, uh, Kath, Kath, uh, Kate, who I'm still friendly with, is interesting. 1997, they actually came to a launch party that we did at the Bohemian Club for flat screen TV in San Francisco. Now, the Bohemian Club is a very, very special place. I'm going to ask you to investigate it afterwards, so I'm sure you're going to kind of see things about it. Anyway, they came to, to, to a launch that we did at the Bohemians. I got a, this special invitation to be in the Bohemians, and it was a big deal in those days. Flat screen TV was a big deal in those days, you know. So. Um, Wade came and they invited me very shortly afterwards to join this entrepreneurial mentoring program for first year engineering students at Berkeley University. Uh, now then, in those days, the first of the um, influx of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Eurasians was coming in with great technology brains. And anyway, uh, so we put this program together and it was built upon a coaching methodology of building team, team building, attitude, uh, working together. Um, and, um, and it exists to this day. Like I said, it exists in two of the largest organizations in the world today as a methodology of coaching. I think I lost some of my conversation there, but I'm going to leave yeah. it at that for a moment.
0: It's it's uh it's so cool to hear your stories because there's so many and I want to speak to you even more and more and more uh, about, you know, your journey. <laughs> it, it's it's a couple of things that, where I want the audience to hear um, before we'll wrap the episode up is I want to I want people to understand that, you know, let's call you an older gentleman in a very respectful way, Peter. But you've been able to see so much of this world over the past 70 plus years. And you've created all this wisdom th- from that. My question to you is mindset real quick. What do you, what tips do you give to people to keep your mindset strong on this journey of life? And what do you do at this age to keep yourself sharp?
1: Well, I am still a barefoot beach runner. I decided in 97 that I would always live by the beach so that I could fill that aim and every day for the rest of my life, unless I am traveling um, or in a place that there's no way I can barefoot run, um, that that was the gift I was gonna give myself. And I gave myself that gift on August 29th, 1997, that was my birthday. And each day I do it, it's like opening a present to myself. Um, The other thing that I do is have a total loss of memory of everything that I've done with a client once I've left their premises kind of thing or we've ended our conversation until the next time. Uh, And and I've actually cultivated that because I found that if I continued, oh, well, what are we going to do next time? I'd get into a quagmire and really unable to take on uh, my next conversation. So I've actually, you know, I learned to kind of train myself into, okay, put that stuff aside. Uh, I'm, I'm clear. And, uh, but I think the exercise is vitally important. Food is vitally important. Um, and, 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 and be in an experience. Be clear that the next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to give it everything I've got. It's my opportunity. My opportunity in coming here today is, wow, what a gift. Now I can come and sit back and go, oh, yeah, well, we did this and we did that. Or I could come here and go, wow, Danny, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for this gift that you've given me.
0: Wow. So your perspective on life every day. You're always looking the good. You're looking for things, the the lesson. You're looking for the the great in everything, and you're showing up with a great attitude. And I really love that because you know, as you maybe go you know, age in life, you might think that oh no, just kick back and just life let life. No, but you're attacking it head on still, and you're so vibrant, and you're and you're considered an older person where you think you know cliche <laughs> that you're just going to be lounging all the time, Peter. But you're out there conquering the world still. It's, uh, it's really inspiring. You
1: know, we started something recently because of this recognition thing. I'm a believer that we acknowledge each other for what it is we do. So about a year or so ago, I decided that what we were going to do is we were going to take a bunch of our clients that had really shown up in their own things, in their own lives, in their own businesses, and we were going to award them with a certificate. And the certificate that we started at that time um, was going to be blockchain-backed and therefore available on the internet and verif- verifiable. And that's what we started doing. Um, we, we do this now with all of our programs, all of our coaches. We do it around the world. Uh, we have a blockchain-backed digital certificate program um, that people get for, we have one called first team player award. Uh, We went on Clubhouse for five, six months ago. We do a daily show on Clubhouse. I involved myself because these are the things that allow me to kind of embrace them as opportunities.
0: That's great. And and you show it because you're also going to attract all that type of stuff more to your life because you're putting in the action in a very positive way and you have a lot of experience to to, uh, I would say, not make the same mistake twice when you approach you know, new, new territories and whatnot. But you're, you're doing it out of love, yeah, it sounds Danny, like. Yeah, let me ask you a question. A question
1: that was asked to me a long time ago. You know, Peter, as you age, Danny, as you age, you know, and you get to the pearly gates and St. Peter says to you, okay, let's have a look at your record here. And uh, St. Peter asked you the question. So, you know, did you come here all used up or did you come here with lots of goal for the future? How would you react to that?
0: Wow, that's a loaded question. I would react to it by saying there's no end. So I I I, I came accomplished and still hungry. I love it. Good answer then.
1: Good answer. I I made the answer for myself that said, when I get there, I want to be all used up.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to say that answer, Peter. You know what I do? I do. I, I that's my that's my answer. My answer is <laughs> is. is, is
1: but-, but that's who you are, Danny. You see, that's what I right. know about.
0: You. I want to have the faith to know yeah. that 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 I will that this journey was all used up, and I maximized it, and I'm, I'm I made myself that's and it. my family proud but I'm very open yeah. to what's next. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I, I
1: remember one experience with you, I think one of the first weeks that I ever kind of joined you in a meeting and and you came and you kind of opened up from a very spiritual place. And I knew at that time, you know, in my, in my own inner sense, that, you know, this young man's, going places and that was the sense that you delivered to me and you came and you threw it all out on the table that was the difference when you push it all out there you know uh, uh, being in business is rather like being a, a painter or a sculptor you know a painter or a sculptor often when they get their work there the big decision is, oh, you know, now I've got to show it. And, and, and when I show it, people are going to like it. They're not going to like it. They're not going to buy it. I'm open to ridicule. Being in business is the same. Being an owner is the same. And, and I like myself. I liken myself to an artist. I say I'm an artist in business. You know, I'm creative. I'm action oriented. And I'm willing to put it out there on the line. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. You know, I want to ask you that I I consider you, you know, a leader for this world. Uh, I I know you're a philanthropist. I know that you're creating these foundations. And what would you say is next for you? Like what? Where's your vision right now? You know that we talked about the core values is very important to a business. But the vision is important. Once you nail down the core values, where are you going? Where's your vision now?
1: It, it, it's such a, a big question, you know. I kind of I, I do ponder that question. What is my vision? Um, you know, the the easy answer is, you know, um, that we live in such uncertain times that anything I can do to bring a semblance of reality back is is everything for me. Um, and my vision is. To be actively engaged in in giving everything I've got back into society um, at at any level and for any any reason, um, and uh, I guess I'm going to stop there. Is that is that part of your why? Yeah, yeah, part yeah. My why is I've been, you know, I mean. Well, why me, you know? Um, but my dad gave me a book years ago. Oh, it just kind of clicked in here. Um, and the book was titled, If Not Me, Who? And If Not Now, When? And and that that's one of the titles I've lived with. Another title I've lived with is... Um, Uh, Another kind of guru for me, uh, Gurdjieff, wrote a book called Meetings with Remarkable Men. And and it's an allegoric story, um, but it's one that I guess for the first 10 or 15 years of my coaching career, I would give to men that I was working with, that I saw kind of an affinity or had an affinity with. And... um, As an allegoric story, it's the the journey of him through his life and and the the different phases of a man's life, you know. And for me, many times in my life, I've considered myself the trickster. Many times in my life, I've considered myself the lover. Many times the magician. Many times, you know, all of these kind of areas. And this book, Meetings with Remarkable Men, I actually took on the title you know that being a man is
0: a remarkable experience wow and what's your take on the word happiness <laughs>
1: man i'm happy right now we're done you know i mean i'm gonna have a cup of coffee maybe have some dinner um the man my take on the way i i think i was always frightened of it um You know, this thing of happiness. Oh, now I just clicked back. What I was saying about this um, Berkeley thing, 1997, I was introduced to 3,000 people in Zellenbeck Hall, uh, University of Berkeley. And they brought me out on stage and said, we want to introduce you to Peter Marcus. He's a streetwise entrepreneur.
0: Ah, there it is. And that's what Arby Barroso is. And and I'm going to give him one shout out because we all worked together in the past, is that we're streetwise entrepreneurs. I love him. Uh, He's good people. Great people. I love him. Yeah. So to wrap up, Peter, and thank you so much for the time and the opportunity to speak with you. What's some final pieces of advice, let's say, to a person who's early on in life, let's say before 30 years old, and they need some wise advice from Peter Marcus in business and life? Yeah. Um, Put yourself
1: in the game of practice. It's not about playing the big game. It's about when you're called on to play the big game, it's just another day in the game of practice. Be in the game of practice. Get up, get regular. Do what you love to do. Uh, Love is really important. Do what you love to do. Um, But I think this thing about, you know, we we have some cliche titles in our programs. Playing a bigger game. Um, uh, It's all about you. Have a look at who you've become. But I think the biggest one of all of them is put yourself in the game of practice really show up for what you do. Be there on time, bring your best. Um, You know, my business card actually is very formed for a reason. Uh, My business card says it's all about you. And actually, whenever I used to hand my business card, I've said the same to you. So look, this is my business card. It's not made to go on your desk or in your wallet. Uh, It's made to go in the left-hand corner of your bathroom mirror. And each morning when you go and do your, clean your teeth or comb your hair or take a shave or put on your makeup, depends on how you feel on the course of that day, have a look into the mirror and have a look into your own eyes. Only you know the truth. That's when it's all about you.
0: Yes, Peter, you hit him with a grand slam to, to, to really capture the essence of who you are. And, and thank you, Peter Marcus. Where can people find you? Uh, well, you know, the
1: easy way to find me uh, generally on social media is certainly through LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me, uh, Peter, at MarcusCoaching.com. Um, uh, you can find me uh, uh, in many areas, I guess. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Twitter.
0: Can you hear me, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. Sorry, got cut out. Yeah. He's on Instagram, Peter Marcus. Is it Peter Marcus Coaching? Yeah.
1: Uh, Peter Marcus on Instagram, Peter Marcus uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Marcuscoaching.com or Peter at Marcuscoaching.com. Uh, uh, if you're interested and you want to get on Clubhouse and do a program with us, we you know we've got uh, we've got the great uh, opportunities. We're doing now about three hours a day, Monday through Friday on Clubhouse. Uh, we start early in the morning. We start at six a.m. Uh, then we take a little break, uh, and then we finish about 11 a.m. So, uh, you know, and it's all, it's called Business Life Global Strategies. We talk business all the time. That's what we do. And we talk to business owners and founders and people who want to build a business. Perhaps people have got a business that's really having a hard time. Um, we talk the bits and pieces, the nitty gritty. And, uh, you know, uh, text me. Text me direct. My phone number's on my website. You can call me direct, and I'm always available. Uh, and uh, and I look forward to it. Thank you.
0: Well, anybody out there who is interested in this, I put my name behind Peter Marcus. He's a phenomenal guy, and he's going to get you to where you need to go. And Peter, I'm looking forward to connecting with you now. We recross paths, Great. and I'm looking yeah. forward to maybe I'll come see you in West pa- or in Palm Beach where... You're around the wealthy and living the high life. <laughs> no, but more importantly, I know Rich is inside.
1: <laughs> you know, I live in a beach cottage. I'm so lucky, you know, I mean, I'm like three minutes of, you know, well, five minutes. I'm actually, you know, into the ocean. But again, it's the, I'm only here for one reason. And that is that every day I can go on my run and take a barefoot sand run at the beach. It's part of my birthday gift from
0: myself from August 29, 1997. And I just have to end this note with me and Peter do share the same birthday, August 29th. So that's why we reconnected. Thumbs up. Peter Marcus, great talking to you guys. Episode number nine. That's incredible. And we're rolling. So that's a Beatles title, you know, number nine, number nine, number nine. Wow. There's the rock and roll for you. There's the energy. Thanks, guys, so much for tuning in. Subscribe, like, do all this stuff for social media, and keep on tuning in.